Shalom, and welcome back to our Migilat Echa series. I'm Yael Ziegler. Today we're going to be examining Perak Aleph. I'm going to give a little bit of an overview of Perak Aleph, note the tone, the writing ideas of Perak Aleph with an eye towards understanding the theological perspective of this parak. Um, and before I begin, I'll just make a structural point, which um, I, I believe it really underscores the, um, the overriding uh, theological idea or theological perspective of the parak, and that is that this parak can easily be divided into two parts. Um, last time, in our last class, we noted that the speaker in Megillat Echa tends to change and flow uh, alongside the idea uh, that is being that is being indicated or that is being uh, discussed. And sometimes we have the speaker is the I, sometimes it's the I of the person, sometimes it's the collective I of Yerushalayim. Um, in, in Megillat Echa, Perak Aleph, the first half of the Perak from Pasuk Aleph into Pasuk Yud Aleph is the objective narrator. We have a third person um, narration, almost a factual account of Yerushalayim's emptiness, of Yerushalayim's destruction. Whereas beginning in the second part of Pasuk Yud Aleph until the end of the parak, more or less, as we shall see, we have a first person description of Yerushalayim on the part of Yerushalayim herself. Um, now there are certain exceptions to, to this uh, division and we will be noting them as we go along, notably Perak Perak Aleph Pasuk Tet, the second half of the Pasuk, is in fact also spoken in first person. And in the second half of this Perak, Pasuk Yud Zion, verse 17, once again we revert back to a third person objective description. But largely what I want you to note at the outset of our study of this Perak is in fact that the first half of the parak is is told over in a third person objective narration, whereas the second half of Parak Aleph is a first person subjective narration of the same events. Uh, now, what events are we in fact talking about? Parak Aleph is a description of Yerushalayim. We begin famously with the words Echa Yashava Vadad Ha'ir Rabati Am Hayata Ke'almana. How has this city sat lonesome. The city that was once teeming, filled with people, has become like a widow. And in fact, this is the description of Yerushalayim in the immediate aftermath of the destruction. The description is not loud, it's not angry, it's not um, It's not particularly destructive. We don't hear sounds of the destruction of the Babylonians, we don't hear buildings crashing, we don't hear the crackle of the fire as it burns Yerushalayim to a crisp. Rather, what we here is almost a lack of sound. We hear the emptiness of Yerushalayim. We hear the loneliness of Yerushalayim. We hear echoes of what was once a teeming city, but is no longer. The time is uh, the time that we that we tend to view Yerushalayim in Perak Aleph. The time of day is at night. We hear a very eerie sound of the sobs of Yerushalayim at night. Bacho tivke valayla. She shall surely cry in the night. And her tears remain on her cheeks. Why do her tears remain on her cheeks? Simply put, because there's no one there to wipe them off. Yerushalayim is empty. It's empty of its inhabitants. It um, has a certain 
loneliness that we that we hear here and as i mentioned it's an eerie loneliness because we have this image of Yerushalayim that was just a few uh months ago just a few weeks ago it's not clear exactly when Perak Aleph was composed uh, but a short time ago it was teeming with people and now those sounds have been silenced and so what we hear in this parak is really the loud crash of silence in the aftermath of the destruction um what's described in Yerushalayim is the emptiness, and this we see throughout the parak, right? So in the very first pasuk, we have Yerushalayim sitting lonely. In the second pasuk, we have Yerushalayim crying with her tears on her cheeks, and we're told, she has no comforter. That's, of course, why her tears are left on her cheeks. Mikol ohaveha, from all those who loved her. Kol re'eha bagduva hayula le'oivim. And all of her friends have betrayed her and have become for her as enemies. So she has no uh, beloved ones left and she has no friends left. Rashi believes that both the ohaveha and the re'eha, both the beloveds and the friends, are are one and the same, they are identical. That's not necessarily clear from the Pasuk itself. The Pasuk seems to be making a distinction between Ohaveha on the one hand and Re'eha on the other. One could certainly conclude from a reading of this Pasuk that the Ohaveha that are no longer in Yerushalayim to comfort her are Am Yisrael, who we shall see in a moment, have been taken into Galut, have been taken into exile. And the Re'eha, the friends, may be the first reference to an important theme both in Megillat Echa and in the prophets in general in the Tanakh and that is of course the political alliances. Those people who Am Yisrael counted among their friends most prominent among them of course being Egypt, Mitzrayim which we see over and over the Nevi'im warn Yisrael do not make an alliance with Mitzrayim they are the wrong address. Of course, the correct address for um, for relying on someone is on God. These political alliances are bad for Am Yisrael, both because they're not trustworthy and because they deflect Am Yisrael's attention from the one to whom she really should be relying upon, as we mentioned, of course, and that is God. So the Re'eha may be the political alliances. They may also be some of the surrounding nations from whom we have perhaps certain expectations at certain points in history that they will be our allies. There's also, of course, a relationship between Am Yisrael and Edom, Am Yisrael and Moab and Ammon. Edom, of course, coming from Esav, Ammon and Moab coming from Lot. Some of you may be thinking, well, I mean, of course, they've always been our enemies. And yet, one of the things that we'll see in Echa is that their betrayal seems to have been of particular, um, um, a particular source of hurt for Am Yisrael because at certain points in history, we know that Am Yisrael did have good relations with these neighbors. And in fact, there's a sense because of the familiar relationship, because of the background, that perhaps there is, is an expectation that, um, that they will in fact uh, ally with us, especially when it comes to defending ourselves against a common enemy. Okay, so here we have these Re'eha, these friends, Bagduva, Bagduva, who have betrayed her. And of course, the sense here is that Yerushalayim has no one left. Uh, this sense is, in fact, continued 
in Pasuk Dalit. In Pasuk Dalit, we're told all of her gates are desolate. And of course, the gate was the bustling center of town, the place where people brought their wares to sell, the place where all visitors uh, entered the gate of the city uh, and they, they first enter there. Of course, it's also a place of judgment. It's a place of gathering. And now those gates are lonely. They are desolate. The Kohanim, the priests, are moaning quietly. The young maidens are also moaning, right? Uh, we see that in Pasuk Hey, Oleleha Hal Hushvi, her young children have gone into captivity. So there's no one at the gates, there's no children, there's no beloveds, there's no friends, right? Yushalayim is left completely empty. Um, uh, emptied out of her inhabitants. And also in Pasuk Vav we see, Vayetzei mibat kol hadara. All of her glory has left her. Batzion, meaning Yerushalayim, it was once a place that was full, it was filled with people, it was filled with glory, and now it's empty and it's desolate and it's lonely. And we feel that loneliness throughout our reading of Perak Aleph and the silence that really goes along with that loneliness. Um, what about B'nai Israel? Where are they? Do we get a glimpse of them in Perak Aleph? Indeed, twice in this opening section of Perak Aleph, we almost turn the camera away from Yerushalayim and we get a glimpse of Am Yisrael. This is both in Pasuk Gimel and in Pasuk Vav. What is happening with Am Yisrael? Well, in Pasuk Gimel we're told, Galta Yehuda Meoni Umerov Avodah Hi Yashva Vagoyim Lo Matza Manoach Yehuda has gone into Galut uh, with terrible burdens and with persecution. She tries to sit amongst the nations, but she does not find a resting place. Instead, all of her pursuers catch up with her between the narrow straits. Now, a similar kind of uh, movement towards looking at Am Yisrael in Galut occurs also in verse 6 in where we're told, This was the Pasuk that I quoted previously. And all of, of Zion's uh, glory leaves her. Her um, officers were like Ayalim, were like uh, rams who did not find a pasturing place, a place to pasture. And they went without strength. They walked without strength before the pursuer. Now, there are two common elements that we see to this description of Am Yisrael in Galut. The first one is that they are being chased. The Rodef, the pursuer, appears both in Pasuk Gimel and in Pasuk Vav. The sense is that Am Yisrael is in flux. It is a dynamic description. They are moving, moving, moving. And the other common element to these two psukim are the words Lo Matza. Lo matzu, they do not find whatever they're looking for, whether it's a resting place or a place to pasture, they don't find it. This is almost an encapsulation of the description of Am Yisrael in Galut uh, throughout our history. They're in flux. 
rocks. They are wandering from place to place. There's a, a sense of restlessness and a sense that they're not going to find that resting place in Galut. A similar kind of description is going to appear once again in Perak Dalid, and perhaps we'll look at it there as well. But the sense, of course, is that Yerushalayim has been emptied. Am Yisrael is in flux. Nothing positive um, is going to come out of this. Am Yisrael is not going to be able to find a resting place. So this is the general feeling of this first parak. Um, I, I want to describe something else in this first parak, and that is what I think we have begun already to describe, and that is the sense of hopelessness, the sense that they're they're not finding anything, and that they're completely exhausted. They've been um, completely emptied of their vitality, of their strength, of their of their energy. They go without any sort of strength, and this description is a description. Um, which really indicates a certain sense of resignation or, as I said, hopelessness. Now, this point, I think, is continued throughout the parak. The parak is a very hopeless parak. In fact, the very fact that it begins by describing Yerushalayim as an almana. Now, of course, the um, the kaf here, ke almana, suggests that Yerushalayim is not really a widow. She is like a widow. And Rashi picks up on this uh, on this uh, on this ke almana and says, Velo almana mama. She's not really a widow. She's like a woman that her husband went to a faraway place, but eventually he's going to return. We know that Yerushalayim is not a widow because no matter what the metaphor is here, whether it's that Yerushalayim is married to God and God has abandoned her, or that Yerushalayim is married to the the people, to Am Yisrael, and Am Yisrael have abandoned her, we know that she's not actually a widow because in either case, her husband is not dead but that there is ultimately going to be a reunification between husband and wife, whether it's Yerushalayim and the people, Yerushalayim and God. However, the very use of the word almana, and here I want to perhaps um, uh, move a little bit past Rashi, despite the cuff, suggests Yerushalayim's feeling in this situation. She is like a widow. Why is she like a widow? Well, first of all, she is vulnerable, she has no protection. She has no sustenance. And again, the sense here is that she has no hope. She's in a terrible state of, um, of, of loss, a state of loss which does not seem to her to be immediately um, able to find some sort of solution. Now, this idea, I think, we see later on in the parak, in, for example, in Pasuk Yudalid, where Yerushalayim says about herself, Nitanani Hashem bidei lo uchal kum. God has given me into the hands of one before whom I cannot get up. Right? The sense here is that she is weighted down. She doesn't feel that she can get up again. She doesn't feel that she can make a recovery. We have a another very hopeless description in uh, Pasukaf in verse 20 where she says, Michutz shikla cherev babayit kamavet. Outside the sword reigns, and inside the house there's only death. Right? The sense is, is that there's nowhere to run, there's nowhere to hide. If I go outside, I will be put to death by the sword. If I come inside, I will die of plague or starvation or whatever is going on in the house. This is, of course, the fulfillment of prophecies that we had. For example, uh, in Yirmiyahu, Perak Yudalid, these kinds of this idea of prophecies of Yirmiyahu actually finding expression 
in Megillat Echa, we see throughout Megillat Echa, this is only one example of that, but I really want to focus more on the sense of hopelessness that emerges from that kind of description. There is nowhere to turn. Um, a similar kind of feeling is uh, occurs in Psukim Yud Aleph and Yud Bet, um, and here I want to I want to look at this structural point that I made at the end of our previous shiur, and that is that at the end of pasuk Yud Aleph, Yerushalayim turns to God and says, "Re'ei Hashem vehabita, look God and see, look, look at me, God." That's what she's asking. She's asking for God to look at her, and this is part of I think a very important theme that we see throughout Megillat Echa. In fact, in almost every parak, Yerushalayim turns to God with a request that God look at her. Now, this is itself, I think, a very minimalistic request. She's not asking that God comfort her or that God rehabilitate her. Instead, she simply is asking for God to turn his attention to her, which, of course, implies that she feels that God has turned away from her, which, of course, is a state of being that we know very well from Sefer Devarim, from Perak Lamed Aleph, and that is, of course, the state of Hester Panim, a state in which God hides his face from the people. He is not looking at Yerushalayim. That is the reason that the Chorban has happened, and therefore, in order to begin the road to recovery, Yerushalayim has to turn to God with a very minimalistic request, simply look at me, God. This minimalistic request, again, suggests a very uh, difficult state, a state in which she really seems to have no hope. Now, of course, another uh, um, another uh, um, aspect of the parak which suggests her lack of hopelessness is this constant refrain that we have throughout the parak of "Ein la minachem," she has no comforter. Um, we see this uh, several times in this parak. So in addition to Pasuk Bet, where it described the fact that no one was wiping her tears, we also have it appear again in Pasuk Ted Zion, where she says about herself, Ki rachak mimeni menachem. In Pasuk Yud Zion, where she says, where the objective narrator comes in and says, Ein menachem la. And once again in Pasuk Kaf Aleph, where Yerushalayim once again says about herself, Ein menachem li. So the word menachem actually appears four times in this parak every single time in the negative. There is no comfort for Yerushalayim in this parak. And that's because there is no hope for Yerushalayim in this parak. Again, in Pasuk Zion, we're also told, Ein Ozerla, there is no one to help her. The sense in this parak is a sense of hopelessness. She is emptied out of her vitality, of her people, of her hope, of her future. Um, I think we see this really very strongly throughout the parak. Look again, for example, in Pasuk Yudbe, Bet, uh, she says uh, after after she requests from God, Re'e Hashem v'habita, look God and look at me, see me. And again, uh, we noted that that's because she feels that God is not looking at her. She immediately uh, almost almost uh, uh, turns that same request from the direction of God to the direction of the Ovrei Derech, and that's in Pasuk Yud Bet. She turns to the Ovrei Derech and she says to them, Habitu Ure'u, just look at me. Who are these Ovrei Derech? I think the feeling is, and I mentioned this in my last class, they are nobody of significance. They are nobody who have a relation, they're not someone who has a relationship with Yerushalayim, and therefore, her request to God becomes so readily apparent to her that it is going to remain unanswered, but she still wants 
just someone to look at her, someone to see her pain, someone to identify with her pain, someone to give her a little bit of comfort simply by the mere act of glancing at her. And what is it that she says? She says, Habitu ra'u, look and see. Im yesh mach'ov kemach'ovi. Is there any pain like my pain? Asher olali that has been done to me. Again, the sense that nobody has gone through this as she feels all alone in her pain is conveyed by this pasuk. One more point I'll make about the hopelessness, and that is that in Pasuk Gimel, when Yehuda is described as going into Galut, we have here some intriguing um, references to the Galut of Mitzrayim. We're told here, Galta Yehuda me'oni umerov avoda. Oni and Avoda, these are Mitzrayim words, these are words from Shmot, Perak Aleph, right? This is Yehuda that is experiencing this persecution, this enslavement. And of course, this description is strengthened by the fact that at the end of the Pasuk, we're told, And I translated this as all her pursuers caught up with her between the narrow straits. But I don't think that it's a stretch to suggest that the word Mitzarim, which here comes Milashon Tsar or Tsara from the, the root trouble, also is meant to remind us as a wordplay of the word Mitzrayim. Now, of course, Mitzrayim is a galut that lasts for a very long time. It is a very uh, it's a very difficult galut. It's a galut that brings us really to the brink of um, self-implosion, to a real sense of le- loss of identity, of of uh, almost really to the brink of annihilation, to a real sense of hopelessness. And the fact that Yehuda, the fact that Yerushalayim is described here in Perk Aleph, in Megillat Echa, as going into a galut which evokes images of Mitzrayim, also, in my mind, conveys a certain sense of hopelessness. Now, of course, we know that what happens is, is that Galut Bavel is, is not at all like the Galut of Mitzrayim. They are very different exiles. The Galut of Bavel, of course, is much shorter. It is much less uh, difficult in terms of the persecution of Am Yisrael, the, um, the, the state of mind of Am Yisrael. And yet, of course, Am Yisrael does not know that. Certainly not in, or seems to be not in Megillat Echa, Perak Aleph. And so by evoking Mitzrayim here, once again, we get the sense of hopelessness. Now I want to turn to what I really want to focus on in um, in Echa, Perak Aleph, and that is the theological perspective of the Perak. Is there, in fact, an explanation of the Chorban? This is, of course, a broader question in general in Megillat Echa. How much does Megillat Echa actually offer any sort of theological explanation or even any sort of attempt to grapple with some of the preeminent theological problems posed by the Chorban? How much does that, in fact, happen in Echa is a question that we will uh, refer to throughout this series. In today's class, I simply want to focus on in Echa Perak Aleph, we have um, two separate parts to the Perak. And in the first part of the Perak, we have the description, uh, or I would even say the theological perspective of the objective narrator. Where do we see it? Well, take the most obvious 
uh, place in which we see it is in Pasuk Chet. The narrator says very simply, after describing for six or perhaps even seven psukim, the emptiness of Yerushalayim, the pain of Yerushalayim, the, um, the, the terrible um, sense of restlessness and hopelessness of the people in Galut, Yerushalayim turns to, uh, the uh, narrator, excuse me, turns directly to Yerushalayim with a pointed finger of accusation. Chet chata Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim has surely sinned. Alkain l'nida hayta. Therefore, she has become like a nida, like an excommunicated one. And the word nida here may suggest several things. First of all, that she becomes an object of everyone wagging their head at her. Milashon, ye know the bureau show, um, that they are wagging their heads at her. Also, perhaps, this wandering image of Yerushalayim. But finally, of course, we can't ignore the association with Yerushalayim as a menstruant woman who everyone distances themselves from her. And this seems to be part of the description here that we're going to see also in the continuation. The objective narrator describes Yerushalayim as one who has sinned and therefore is in the state of Anida. All of those who once honored her now view her, and this is what the Ibn Ezra says, as being the opposite of one who deserves honor, that is one who is cheapened. Why? For they have seen her nakedness. Achor, she herself groans, she is rep- repulsed by herself, and she withdraws, and she makes this movement backwards. Um, if we look in the next pasuk, the next pasuk continues this image of this defiled woman, of this um, this this uh, woman who is um, uh, people see her nakedness, and therefore she is a in a in a state of humiliation. Tumata bishuleha her uncleanness is on her hems. Lo zachra acharita v'tered pla'im ein menachem We have here this description of Yerushalayim who is a defiled woman, right? The ultimate uh, symbol of disgrace is used to portray the intensity of the city's degradation. Also, I think the fact that the enemies come in and level the city and take out all of the splendor of the city, all of the boil, all of the spoils of the city, this image is a very powerful image of humiliation and degradation. Um, there may, however, be a more powerful connotation to this imagery, a more, I would say, even acute Accusatory connotation of this imagery. The city of Yerushalayim and the people of Yerushalayim are portrayed as a woman who used to be a zona, right? Let's not forget that Yeshayahu in Perak Aleph says, He describes Yerushalayim as a city of uh, prostitutes. And indeed, uh, uh, Yeshayahu seems to be describing the fact that she flirts with political and economic alliances. She flirts with idolatry, with those who will eventually betray her, who will eventually violate her. And so here in this description, it's almost as though 
Yerushalayim is not just being described in her pain, but she's also being accused. She's also being told that she is responsible for her own pain. Yerushalayim is left as a humiliated woman who is a um, uh, in a state of of degradation. Um, and, and this this description, I think, is an extremely difficult description. But it also, I think, is an is a description which is also an accusation. Now, as part of this description. Or, or as the um, the narrator describes Yerushalayim in this way, and it's really indeed, I think, a very harsh description, suddenly Yerushalayim's voice breaks through. And and Yerushalayim's voice breaks, breaks through in the middle of the Pasuk, suggesting, in fact, that this breakthrough is a function of Yerushalayim's inability to restrain herself. She interrupts the narrator in the middle of his speaking. He says, Tumata bishuleha, her impurities are on her hems, everyone can see her impurities, and therefore, ain menachem la, therefore she has no comforter, and suddenly Yerushalayim turns to God and says, re'e Hashem et on ye, look God at my suffering, look at me God, see my pain. Yerushalayim breaks through this, 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 um, very, um, harsh accusation and requests of God that he see her pain. Now, at this point, the objective narrator goes back uh, to describe what he was describing, and that is, of course, Yerushalayim's, um, both her violation and her culpability. And in Pasuk Yud Aleph, Yerushalayim once again breaks through in the middle of the Pasuk with the words, Re'e Hashem v'habita ki'ayiti zolila. Look, God, and see. Once again, Yerushalayim turns to God and says, um, just, just look at me, God. Now, at this, from this point on, Yerushalayim becomes the narrator. And what I want to point out is that when Yerushalayim enters and starts speaking on her own, really two things happen. And one is that we really feel her pain. And she sort of springs to life. She shares the depths of her anguish. And we move with her. We share in her pain. We no longer have the ability to judge her or blame her, accuse her, certainly not harshly. We just simply experience with her her agony. And um, really the accusation that is leveled in the second half of the parak is really against God. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. I just want you to to see first what it is I'm trying to say. In verse 16, Yerushalayim describes her own cries. And I want you to see how evocative this description is, especially compared to the objective narrator's description of Yerushalayim crying in Pasuk Bet. The objective narrator simply stated as a fact, She shall surely cry in the night, and her tears remain on her cheeks. There's something eerie about this description. There's something, of course, as we noted, very lonesome about this description. But it's it's it, it's not as evocative as when Yerushalayim describes her own tears in Pasuk Tetzayin. Al ele ani vochia, eni eni yorda maim ki rachak mimeni minachem. About these things I cry. My eyes, my eyes, they flow with water. For at a great distance from me is any comforter. Right. The sense once again is that the tone has changed. Yerushalayim can describe her pain in a way that is quite different than when the objective narrator describes it. It's much more powerful when Yerushalayim speaks about herself. And that, of course, uh, leads us to the question, if, in fact, the medium 
of Yerushalayim speaking about herself is so much more moving, is so much more compelling, and it's so much more evocative, then why have two mediums? And in fact, one of the things that I want you to note here is that the parak is divided rather equally into two, right? The first half is objective narrator, the second half is subjective Yerushalayim. What I want to suggest is, is that these two mediums are both necessary for describing the, uh, the Chorban. It's almost as though we're seeing on the one hand God's perspective and on the other hand Am Yisrael's perspective. Now let's not forget that Yirmiyahu is the prophet who, uh, who composed Megillat Echa, according to our, our Masoret, according to our tradition. And one of the things that Chazal tells us about Yirmiyahu is that he is an ideal prophet. What makes an ideal prophet? Well, the Midrash tells us this when it compares three different prophets two of whom come out lacking, and Yirmiyahu ends up being the ideal prophet. Who are the two prophets that are lacking? Well, there's Eliyahu, and there's Yonah. Eliyahu is lacking because he wished to represent only God to the people, but not the people to God. Yonah is lacking for the exact opposite reason. Yonah only wants to represent the people's perspective and position to God, but not God's position to the people. But we know, of course, that the ideal prophet is one who can uh, represent both sides of the story, both sides of the coin. And that is Yirmiyahu. That's what the Midrash tells us. Now, when we search through the book of Yirmiyahu, indeed, we see that Yirmiyahu is a prophet who very much, um, who very much loves and identifies with the people. Perhaps he's a bit hesitant to represent God's perspective. Uh, I see in in uh, Megillat Echa the ideal representation of Yirmiyahu as a prophet. Yirmiyahu in Perak Aleph weaves together these two different perspectives of the destruction of the Chorban and the reason for the Chorban in almost a seamless fashion. In the first half of the Perak, we have the objective narrator who almost represents God's perspective and therefore is able to level a rather harsh accusation at Yerushalayim. And on the other hand, in the second half of the parak, we get the perspective of Yerushalayim herself, who is um, who is simply cannot uh, cannot handle is grappling with the the terrible situation in which she finds herself at the mercy of. Uh, God. To bring this point home, I think we can compare two different descriptions in in this parak, in Pasuk Hay and in Pasuk uh, Yudbet. Right? In Pasuk Hay, when the objective narrator is describing Yerushalayim, it's a very interesting Pasuk. Each Pasuk in Parak Aleph consists of three separate sentences. Now, the first sentence tells us in Pasuk Hay, Hayut Sareha Lerosh Oiveha Shalu. Her enemies became at the head. Her enemies were at peace. Shalu Shalva. They were peaceful. And what we see here is a description of Russia Vitovlo, that the evil person is actually um, benefiting from this the situation at hand. This description is described in what we um, defined last time as Echa meter, right? Kina meter, the meter of lamentation. Three stress syllables in the first sentence and one in the second sentence. Uh, I'm sorry, two in the second sentence. Now, in our last sentence of Pasuke, and I'm, I'm deliberately skipping our middle sentence, what we're told is, Ololeha halchushvi lifneitzar. Her young children went into captivity before the enemy. Ololeha halchushvi 
Shvi. We have three beats in that sentence and one beat in the next sentence. Once again, we have lamentation meter. We're almost choking on our description. And what is this description? This is not Rashavitovlo. This is Sadiq Viralo. These are the children who go into captivity through no fault of their own. Of course, the children are not culpable for anything that they have done. They are simply young children. There is no reason why they should be suffering so. So the first sentence of this pasuk is Rashavitovlo. The last sentence is Sadiq Viralo. But look at the middle sentence. The middle sentence actually does not have any meter of lamentation, we return once again to the meter of biblical poetry, which is equal meter, which puts us once again on some sort of sense of balance. We regain our footing. And what enables us to regain our footing right in the midst of this description of uh, what is theologically incomprehensible? And that is, Ki Hashem Hoga Arov for Hashem made her moan because of the greatness of her sins. Right? The sense here is that the objective narrator is able to offer a very concrete reason, one that can restore our sense of balance. Am Yisrael is being punished. Am Yisrael is being punished for all of her sins. Now, Yerushalayim uses a very similar description of what has happened to her in Pasuk Yudbed. Instead of saying, Ki Hashem Hoga, as we had in Pasukei, she says, Asher Hoga Hashem, God has made us moan. But instead of continuing by saying, because of the greatness of our sins, she goes on and says, Biyom Haron Apo, on the day of his great anger. There's a sense here that Yerushalayim is not able to understand the events that have happened. It's not because of her terrible sins. It is because of God's terrible anger. And what then um, uh, transpires here in Psukim, Yud Gimel, Yud Dalid, and Tedvav, is a terrible description of God's oppression, of God's destruction, of God's almost premeditated attempt to destroy Am Yisrael. He's using all these different images of destruction, of fire and and traps and nets and imprisonment and yokes and enslavement. And uh, in the end, this description here in Pasuk um, uh, Tetvav of God stepping on them as if they're grapes in a wine press, which of course we know is a description that appears about the enemy in Yeshayahu, Perak Samach Gimel, and in Yoel, Perak Dalid, he is... Uh he is reducing Am Yisrael. He, uh, he is uh, re- uh, taking out all their juices. They have no more energy. They have no more vitality. And of course, the color red here suggests not just the uh, the juice of the grapes, but also the blood. And it's a really a very terrible description. Now, what I want to suggest here, and this will be the last thing I'll talk about in this parak, is that these two descriptions or these two perspectives that we have here in Parak Aleph eventually arrive at the same point. Um, when God describes you Yerushalayim, or I'm sorry, when the objective narrator describes Yerushalayim in the first part, it simply is obvious that it's stated as a fact. When Yerushalayim is experiencing her own terrible pain, her own um, uh, the events that have taken place that in which she feels this sense of enormous destruction and pain, in the beginning, she turns almost an accusatory finger towards God, or certainly the description of God here is the description of an enemy a 
persecutor, one who engages in premeditated oppression. However, there is a turning point here as well. And that turning point happens in Pasuk Yudzayin. Basically, this section can be divided into two parts. In the first part, from Pasuk Yud Aleph, all the way through Pasuk Tedzayin, Yerushalayim describes her terrible pain, and she lapses into silence. When does she lapse into silence? After describing her terrible pain, she says, and I cry, and I cry, and my eyes stream with water, because I have no comforter, I have no one who can restore my my energy, because my children are desolate, and the enemy has overcome. And then she lapses into silence. At this point, the objective narrative comes back in. And that's in Pasuk Yudzayin. Here the narrator is uh, attempting to uh, give her an explanation, an explanation which, of course, she was lacking in that initial description of her pain. And this explanation is a very difficult Pasuk, Pasuk Yudzayin. I'm going to read it the way that the Dat Mikra reads it. Uh, the Dat Mikra reads it as follows. Persat Tzion biadeha. Yushalayim Tzion spreads out her hand. This, of course, is a gesture of tefillah. Ein menachemla. But there is no comforter. Why not? Because she turned not to God, but to those political alliances. And therefore, Tziva Hashem liyakov svivav tzarav. God commanded that Yaakov should be surrounded not by friends, but by enemies. And therefore, Haytai Yerushalayim l'nida b'nehem. Yerushalayim has become a nida amongst them. If this is in fact the correct reading, and again, I mean, it's not the only reading, but it certainly is a, a, a viable reading, this reading suggests that the objective narrator comes back in with an accusation, with an explanation even, and turns to Yerushalayim and says, the reason that all of this happened to you is because instead of... Taking your gesture of prayer and turning to God, you took this gesture of prayer and you turned it in the wrong direction. And so God took those same people that you had turned to and used them against you. And this again reminds us of the description of Yerushalayim as someone who flirted with these um, alliances who eventually turn on her. Um, ultimately, this description in, or this explanation in Pasuk Zion actually spurs Yerushalayim forward to her conclusion. And her conclusion immediately comes up in Pasuk Yudchet, Tzadikhu Hashem, Kifihu Mariti. She has understood, she understands, she has listened to the words of her accuser, and she realizes in a flash, God is righteous, for I have rebelled against his words. And this was not a point that she made, that she was able to make in Psukim Yudbet through Tetzayin, but from now to the end of the parak, she is constantly going to go back to that point. She is going to have emerged with a certain recognition of culpability. Tzadiku Hashem, she says in Pasuk Yudchet. In Pasuk Kaf, she's going to say, Ki maro mariti, for I have surely rebelled, and most striking at all is is her conclusion in the very last pasuk in which she says, Ka'asher olal tali al-kol as you, God, have done to me because of all of my sins. And here she fills in what she was not able to say in Pasuk Yudbet. In Pasuk Yudbet she says, you, God, have done this to me because of your great anger. And she deliberately skips what the narrator had explained in Pasuk Hey, as you God did this to Yerushalayim because of all of her sins. In Pasuk Kafbet, she comes back to those words that were missing in Pasuk Yudbet, 
And so Yerushalayim has grappled her way towards a recognition of sinfulness. I'm going to conclude now by describing overall what we've said about this parak. The tone of this chapter is despair, loneliness. There's a stream of consciousness in this chapter. Yerushalayim has fallen to its enemies. Its inhabitants are, are gone. They are no longer in Yerushalayim. They are in flux. They are restless. They are wandering. There is no uh, real destruction in this chapter, just a vacuum, an eerie sort of sound of the sobs of Yerushalayim echoing in the stillness of the night. But perhaps most importantly, from a theological perspective, this chapter meets at the point where the chapter is able to come to some sort of, or the two halves of the chapter, I should say, meet at the point where the chapter is able to come to some sort of conclusion as to the um, uh, the reason that all this has happened. If in the first half of the chapter, when we encounter the uh, perspective of the objective narrator, we see that the conclusion is very obvious and it's very very self-evident, and the harsh accusation that is leveled against Yerushalayim is very clear in the first half. In the second half of the chapter, when Yerushalayim herself speaks, Yerushalayim has to grope her way towards conviction of sinfulness. But Echa Perak Aleph has a very clear sense that the Chorban, that all of the pain that is suffered in this Perak is because of Alkol Psha'eha, because of all of her sins. Now, this point is important to bear in mind because we're not going to see the same conclusion in every parak in Migilat Echa. And this we'll be talking about, Bezra Hashem, in our next shiur. In our shiur on Parak Bet.